Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In the absence of clear direction from the federal government on coronavirus, state and local officials across the country were forced to chart their own course in handling the crisis. A new report by Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting examines the early decisions that were made in two states, California and Florida. And joining us now are, two, are the two reporters on the piece, which is entitled Divided States of the Pandemic. Marisa Lagos, well-known to our listeners, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show, who contributed to the new Reveal episode, joins us. Good morning, Marisa. Morning, Michael. Always great to be with you. Always great to have you, and also great to have Katie Swatowski with us. She's a reporter at WLRN in South Florida's NPR station. Welcome, Katie. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you as well. And Marisa, let's start with you, and let's start with, uh, this is really a, a very important, I think, uh, piece that you both did, and congratulations on it, because it gives us a, quite a historical overview of things and how they got started, and really leadership and the role of leadership, uh, both California and Florida, and the contrast between the two states. Let's start out where you start out, Marisa, which is Chinatown, January, Chinatown Hospital. And I got to give credit to a couple of Berkeley Journalism School students who had actually um, highlighted some of the story before we started doing our reporting. But, you know, Chinatown Hospital, Michael, is an institution um, in San Francisco. This is it started out as a clinic in the early 1900s when um, you know, the Chinese population wasn't allowed to use schools or hospitals or other institutions because of racism. And um, their CEO there actually grew up in China, um, went started medical school there and then came here and ended up staying. And so um, she had this really interesting, I think, early sort of premonition of how bad things might get here. Um, and when it really hit her, she told me, um, and we have a clip I think we can play in just a minute, but was on January 24th, which is the eve of Lunar New Year. And she was looking at WeChat, uh, what's it called? I think WeChat, um, <laughs> that the app that a lot of people use in China to, to communicate. And she realized that a group of her old medical school classmates were, were getting ready on the eve of Lunar New Year, which is like, you know, Thanksgiving here. It's one of the biggest holidays for travel and family get togethers to go to Wuhan. And she started thinking about how close Wuhan is. Um, here, here, just let's let her tell it. So you either go back to China for uh, Chinese New Year or they can come here because it's a holiday. And the direct flight from Wuhan is only 12 hours. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's just 12 hours away. It's January 24th. Washington state has recently confirmed the first U.S. coronavirus case. And President Trump is just starting to talk about the virus. Unlike Dr. Zhang, the president isn't worried. Here he is on CNBC. We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China, and we have it under control. It's uh, going to be just fine. So, so um, Dr. Zhang did not think it was going to be just fine, Michael. And um, she started actually ordering personal protective equipment, the PPE, which we are all so familiar with now. This is in late January. And when she called to get some 2,000 masks, it, they were already back ordered. And she said she realized in that moment that it was going to be a problem here and that they needed to really start preparing people, especially in Chinatown, which has a lot of those single room occupancy hotels. You know, people share elevators and things. Um, and I think, you know, she's not just the only reason Chinatown has fared well here, but I think she's indicative of what Katie and I really found, which was a lot of people who had nothing to do even with public health had their eyes on this early at the local level and I think really helped some communities prepare. Well, by contrast, when we go down to Florida, and Katie, I want to bring you into this, uh, 
you began by telling us about a hospital where a woman shows up with symptoms and it was just the flu, but there was quite a media storm. It was a false alarm. Really alarmed this small town that's just outside of Fort Lauderdale. And there was a lot of mystery surrounding this case at the end of January. It was a woman staying with the family here um, and she came over to Florida from a province in China connected to Wuhan. And so the family that she was staying with got so nervous that she might have COVID. Um, it, it kind of left this woman without a place to stay. And so the hospital really had to take her in, assess what was going on. And this is, there's there's a big difference, I think, between what I've learned in this reporting process, between the the way that public health infrastructure in California is set up compared to another big state like Florida. Um, in Florida, we've got a much more centralized system. So we've got one state Department of Health and they have branches and branch offices in each county. There was a lot of mystery and secrecy over whether this woman had even been tested or not. Um, and so uh, Dr. Stanley Marks, uh, the, the chief medical director at Memorial Healthcare System in Hollywood, he was really quick to say, you know, this was the first time that I got a sense that something was going to be coming. If it was this crazy in January, you know, a lot of doctors in Florida were looking at what was going on in California and they were watching it spread across California and they were really open that this impacted a lot of their decision making. Um, and so I think they just sort of saw this first case as like a, whoa, we better get ready moment. Well, in fact, uh, there was some uh, conversation that was going on, communication between uh, San Francisco Mayor London Breed advising, in fact, uh, Miami Mayor Suarez, who had corona, I believe, uh, advising him to shut down. Yes. Um, uh, City of Miami Mayor Francis Suarez was one of the first people in Miami-Dade to test positive for the virus. Um, and he, he did a big campaign and a video diary on social media sort of um, trying to be really open with the public about what he was feeling, what he was experiencing. He was lucky enough to have very mild symptoms, but he wanted to be as open with the public as possible about his process because he was saying, you know, look, inevitably more people are going to get this. Um, and I don't want you to be afraid when it comes here. And so that was really interesting, but it was one of the fun moments of this reporting to find out. Uh, we had no idea, Marisa and I, uh, before this, how friendly London Breed and uh, Francis Suarez were. That was some joyful reporting. Yeah, it was also fascinating to hear about the two cruise ships, in, uh, the one in mm -hmm. Florida and the one in Oakland, and the contrast of those two. But let me go back to you, Marisa, on this, because uh, we've got skyrocketing numbers again in Florida. A new report says that uh, there's been a big spike in Florida, Arizona, and Texas, and uh, things have, well, perhaps somewhat plateaued, particularly here in Northern California. This gets into the whole question of leadership, and uh, let's talk about Governor Newsom, and then we'll hear what Katie has to say about Governor DeSantis from different political parties. Marisa? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to start to lay out first, but Michael, like, this was a really interesting story, because Katie and I got pulled in, I think, um, some of the editors at Reveal had kind of, you know, thought about this and, and conceived of the idea. And we really didn't know what we were going to find here, right? Like, we started reporting this back, what, in April, I think, Katie, and, and at that point, we were, you know, very early in the lockdowns, we didn't know, um, I mean, we were starting to, you know, see talk about coming out of them, but we didn't know what the numbers were going to be by the time we we went to press, right? And so it was it was almost a struggle in a lot of ways to have that dynamic because we didn't know essentially what the end of the story was going to be until we were ready to write it. Um, and I think that 
but it, but but that uncertainty is the same uncertainty that all of these officials were dealing with as well right because we didn't have testing early on we didn't know what the numbers were going to be um if you know if our hospital systems were going to get overwhelmed and so i think we saw this really interesting kind of different tracks of leadership playing out where uh, in the bay area um after 9 11 essentially we in california devolved a lot of power to local health officers and that's the reason that you had the six counties and one city able to really shut down the region um back in march without bringing in you know the mayors and other folks um and i think what it seemed like that in a lot of ways the governor who i think does deserve credit in california for his sort of leadership um in terms of once the shutdown happened really being out there and holding these press conferences but he really did let the locals lead at the beginning i mean we have vincent matthews the superintendent of san francisco schools telling us that a week before the barrier shut down he and other county officials went to Sacramento and said, can you just shut down schools statewide? And Newsom said, I think that's a local decision. Um, and it seems definitely like the decision um, to shut down the Bay Area helped push the governor in the direction of shutting down the entire state. Um, and I think that, you know, his relationship with Trump is also um, a big sort of it's it's very different than DeSantis's, but he's managed to kind of stay on the president's good side. And so I do think there's parallels between the two states, but Newsom definitely seemed to listen to local leaders more and follow their lead as opposed to sort of what DeSantis did. And Katie can talk to that a little more, but it is, is almost give them the blessing to make their decisions, but not necessarily want to take those statewide. Well, we were the first to shelter in place here in the Bay Area and first in the United States, for that matter, to completely shut down. It wasn't until, Katie, a couple of weeks later till uh, Governor DeSantos actually took that position. It was. Well, there was a much bigger time delay in between when California and when Florida shut down. And I think that's really where the local leaders shined. They didn't want to wait for the state before they had to close things down. Um, and three South Florida counties, Palm Beach County, Broward County, where I am in Fort Lauderdale, and Miami-Dade County, uh, we had most of the cases in the state. And that, that was really where you saw a lot of the regional collaboration in shutting things down and, and our school districts worked together. Um, and even at that level, you had counties working together, but you had individual cities in each county making their own calls of we're going to have a curfew over here. We're going to shut this down, but not basketball courts. So everyone kind of had their own variation on the rules. Um, a big, big moment for us was when local leaders in South Florida closed down um, South Beach in Miami and Fort Lauderdale Beach, because that's a really momentous thing for Florida. Uh, we really only closed the beaches for hurricanes. Um, and I think we have some sound of how the beach closures really went, even when the rest of the state wasn't shutting down beaches. So on Sunday, March 15th, as health officials in the Bay Area are drawing up their otherworldly order to shut down their entire region, Dan Gelber and Chris Lagerbloom stand with other officials from their two cities on the steps of Miami Beach City Hall. The joint announcement comes. The two big spring break beaches will close down, effective immediately in Fort Lauderdale and at midnight in Miami Beach. Here's Gelber. The message has to be clear to people who are coming anywhere, but namely to our cities right now, you, you can't do that anymore. You know, the party is over. Lagerbloom says that closing the beach felt like a big move at the time. I think it was sort of perceived at the time as, well, why are you doing this and why so soon? Um, and maybe now hindsight being 2020, we said, why didn't we do it a week sooner? 
it's funny, Michael, living in the middle of this pandemic and continuing to live in the middle of this pandemic, it was a really unique position to be in to ask these leaders to be reflective mm -hmm. on what they would have changed in those early weeks. And I think the big hope of this project, um, if you agree, Marisa, is that we wanted to see what those lessons could be as we continue to live through this pandemic and what that shows. Um, and so I think the reason we highlight South Florida leaders closing the beaches is because statewide, Governor DeSantis um, did not want to close beaches statewide. And he is a very close political ally of the president. I think that's helped Florida in a lot of ways, get supplies, get testing. Um, that relationship really is beneficial when we're the president's home state technically. Um, and so it, it's interesting to see that not one leadership style is necessarily right or wrong, but they do have different outcomes. And there's a lot more nuance there uh, than I think we expected going in. Katie Swatowski is a reporter with WLRN, South Florida's NPR station. Marisa Lagos is politics correspondent with KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown. And you can join us. We're talking about the disparate coronavirus response in Florida and California with these two ACE reporters, and you may want to weigh in here. You may indeed bring questions forward. And if you do, you can join us now. Our toll-free number is available, and we invite you to be part of the program, talking about how officials in California and Florida handled the early days of the pandemic. And if you have questions or comments, particularly bringing it up to date now, you can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. We welcome your calls. That's toll-free, 866-733-6786, and you can join the program at that number. You can also do it by getting in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. And, Marisa, maybe we can talk a bit about Bay Area health officials here, mm -hmm. particularly Sarah Cody from Santa Clara, who and how they handled this. Uh, she's been apparently under recent death threats that came across the NPR just this morning, but what political leaders uh, thought about their approach at the time. Now, of course, there's been all this greater pressure, and we're in a pressure cooker because uh, there are many who are against the lockdown and want to open up more and so forth, and we can perhaps get into that. But those health officials really were quite prescient and were able to move in a regional way that didn't hold true the southern part of the state. No, and I think some of this actually dates back to the AIDS crisis, Michael, because what happened in 1985, and I mean, if you remember back then, we had a President Reagan who wouldn't even acknowledge AIDS, right? And and it was spreading in the Bay Area and around the globe. Um, and they created a regional sort of loose affiliation they call a BAHO, uh, uh, Association, of, Association of Bay Area Health Officers. And um, yeah, Sarah Cody definitely plays a big role in this story, who's the Santa Clara County Health Officer, as does um, Robert Morrow, who is the um, health officer in San Mateo County. And he talked about the fact that, you know, these, this is a group of folks who get together pandemic or no, and run tabletop exercises to talk about things like what if we need to ration equipment like ventilators or medicine. Um, so they were actually, I think, really well prepared for at least the conversation around this. And you're right. I mean, they essentially, um, as Sam Licardo, the mayor of San Jose, put it, it was like they, they met in secret and it was like, you know, picking a pope with the white smoke comes out when they made their decision. Um, and and that did rub some of the mayors wrong, like Licardo. Um, and we have a, another clip we can play from the story um, where London Breed from San Francisco is talking about this. And she actually did know what the plan was ahead of time because she's the only mayor that's um, oversees both a city and a county. San Francisco is unique like that. So the health department reports to her. Um, and so and so, yeah, so she she actually got word and she talks about the fact that she was a little frustrated that other mayors didn't. 
they said they didn't want to put politics in it, but that's wrong. The fact is, they put forward directives, and then we have to motivate people to comply with those orders. But public health officer Scott Morrow says this was a time for emergency action, not a drawn-out political debate. We didn't have time to go through a great process. At this moment, this had to take precedence because we knew from history that, like New York, New York is going to be damaged for generations. So that, that he, he goes on to talk about the devastation that's going to be etched in the psyche of adults and um, children. And this is Scott Morrow from uh, San Mateo County. And I think, that, you know, that really speaks to this tension where the health officers who, as you mentioned, are now facing death threats. We saw Orange County's health officer resign over the mask mandate and the death threat she got. Now Sarah Cody is getting threats. I think it really speaks to this unique role, these very sort of... Um, normally behind the scenes health officers found themselves in and that they had to stand up and you know not just tell the public but tell a lot of these elected officials like hey we have the legal authority here and we're going to use it um, i think now the the more complicated question is the politics around reopening um, which is clearly i think across the united states proving to be as much of a health call as a political one and you don't see i think you do see the the elected officials kind of taking a little bit more of the limelight now, um, which, you know, I think I think we can argue over it. But I think uh, I think a lot of the way this all played out makes sense. Oh, well, having a president go to Oklahoma for a big rally. And right. uh, we might as well consider that and as part of the equation here. But let me bring a caller on. And that's George. George, welcome. You're on the air. Um, hello. <clears throat> what I heard you guys say was that uh, the beaches were closed for spring break. And that, that is not my recollection at all. What I recall is that they were closed. The beaches in Florida were closed after spring break if you look at the uh, the famous chart of anonymized cell phone uh, traces from the florida beach it goes right up i-75 to detroit before spring break there was no coronavirus in michigan after spring break it exploded so uh, I, I wonder uh, first of all is there because first of all the, it, the beaches were closed after spring break not before or during and second of all do you think the michigan tourists have figured out that they got coronavirus from Florida, and is that going to impact uh, their their tourism for in the future? Katie, let me go to you on that, if I may. Yeah, that's a great question. So in Miami and Fort Lauderdale, well, I do want to be clear, we did not close beaches statewide in Florida, just in Miami Beach and in Fort Lauderdale. And that actually happened for us in what we consider the middle of spring break, one of our peak weekends. But for us, uh, the rolling business of spring break goes through most of March. Um, and so by the time that we closed beaches down, you make a really good point that a lot of the reason that people thought Florida got really lucky with our low cases early in, in March and, and April was that we made the spring breakers leave, right? So there, there are strong theories that spring breakers took the virus with them as they left the state. Um, and now it, spring break is kind of a funny thing for locals because I think a lot of locals avoid those spring break parties anyway, but it's certainly a big business that our tourism industry is hurting. Um, that's, it's hurting at every local level. It's hurting at a statewide revenue level. And that's going to be something that takes a long time to repair and rebuild. And I know at least in South Florida, our tourism industry, they're focusing campaigns over the summer to be staycation centered. Um, so much more focused on 
people who are here not traveling. And that's going to be really interesting to see how it impacts us. It's already very much hurt our statewide revenue. Well, I'm looking at a comment here uh, from a listener named David who says, I see the percentage of citizens who have died of COVID-19 is nearly the same for Florida and California and less than a tenth of the state of New York. Uh, be that as it may, in Florida, there's been a surge of new COVID-19 cases, as I said earlier, and officials are divided over what to do about it. The state saw 2,783 new cases just on Tuesday, and it was the third time in a week that Florida set a new daily record. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says the rising number of new cases was expected, mostly a result of increased testing. But let me go to you again on this, Katie. Uh, local officials and public health experts are concerned about uh, what these statistics really reveal and that it's spreading in Florida. Absolutely. And and you make a good point, Michael. We're breaking records and not in a good way. And we're seeing our percent positives increase in overall as well, which is concerning. Um, and so I think one of the interesting things is, you know, South Florida is the most dense area of the state. Um, and when we closed down, Governor Ron DeSantis's uh, argument for closing down was that we needed to contain the virus because there were certain counties in Florida that you know, only had a handful of cases versus South Florida, we were in the thousands. That was his argument for reopening as well. He really didn't want to take a one size fits all approach. And he's been letting South Florida reopen at a rate that's more slow than the rest of the state. Um, so he's letting us be a couple of weeks behind other areas in, in our phased plan. But it is really interesting to see reopening outside of South Florida has been a much more statewide approach. Um, and yeah, that's something that he says was expected, but a lot of the public health experts Marisa and I talked to in the making of this piece were, were quick to say, hey, you know, just because someone says something is open doesn't mean you should go. <laughs> well, in fact, Governor DeSantis, I think, has said he's not going to shut it down again. In contrast, uh, Marisa, Governor Newsom has said if we have to shut down again, if we have another wave, uh, that's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think that anyone making plans longer than like four weeks out at this point, anywhere in the country, um, maybe ha will have to change them, right? I just, it, it feels, you know, we have seen, obviously, we still don't totally understand what the protest will mean um, for the spread of this reopening. I mean, it does seem to some extent, like some of the spikes we're seeing actually have more to do um, with Memorial Day weekend and restaurants reopening, but it's really hard. And I think that's a big problem we had with this story is that the data is unclear. Um, we know how many tests have been given. We know how many positives, but that doesn't actually tell you how many people have it because we know that so many people haven't been tested. And I think that um, one of the things that uh, a lot of the people, you know, we talked to um, a yoga instructor, Katie interviewed, who had closed down her studio early um, before the shutdown in Florida and still hasn't reopened it, even though she's allowed to, because she and her students don't feel comfortable. And so I think that's something that we're all really grappling with is the sort of individual responsibility to try to make these very important, potentially life or death decisions for our families in the absence of really good information and again, I think, you know, something we haven't spent a lot of time on, but everything we reported on, everything these states did, even with their different political makeups, was really the result of the abdication by the federal government, particularly around testing. I mean, that is the sort of crux of this pandemic and why, you know, the United States has more cases than 
anywhere else in the world probably is that we did not sort of see the writing on the wall as a federal government or if they did they didn't act the same way that i think a lot of the local folks did and so we're still behind and 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 there's so much politicization of this now that it feels like you know we are going to be in for um a pretty long summer and fall let me bring another caller on with us. Kim from San Mateo joins us uh, about California numbers rising. Kim, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Um, yes, I live in San Mateo, and we were one of the first um, counties to shut down, yet our numbers continue to go up. And this, the um, San Mateo proper has 621 cases, and it seems like the numbers keep going up, but um, I'm trying to figure out if there's a reason why or if that's too specific, and maybe that would be a question for somebody else. Well, Marisa, you want to take it's, it? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard, right? I mean, again, some of the numbers around actual cases certainly increasing have to do with testing increasing. We have way more testing available in California than we did just even a few weeks or a month ago. Um, some of it does seem to be tied to the reopening and people getting more comfortable. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, we, it's it's just really hard to know. I mean, certainly we are in a better position in terms of bed capacity and our ability to respond. Um, you don't hear the same hand wringing in a lot of places around PPE and, you know, ventilators and things like that. But um, yeah, we, I don't even know, Michael, that it's fair to say a second wave. I don't, I think we're still in the first wave. I mean, the way Dr. Galley, the um, state health and human services secretary put it to me just a few weeks ago is that when it comes to this pandemic, we are in the bottom of the second inning and we do not know what is to come moving forward. I'm going to read yeah. a couple of comments that are coming in here. Uh, listener writes, Governor Newsom got some praise. However, he was totally ineffective when it came to nursing homes where yeah. many people died. They would not have died if he had exercised his powers to adopt emergency regulations so that infected staff and patients would be separated and all patients and staff would be frequently tested. And Robert writes, your reporter stated that there is no right or wrong in leadership styles during this pandemic. I disagree. When the president issues calls to liberate states egging on protesters with assault weapons and suggests citizens might inject disinfectants, it is incumbent on governors and other leaders to speak up and say, Mr. President, stop, knock it off. It goes back to the whole question of, uh, Katie, if I can go back to you, Katie Switowski again is a reporter with WLRN in South Florida's NPR station. Uh, Marisa mentioned that yoga instructor that you write about, and you also write about the beaches and the difficulty with social distancing on the beaches. who closed and were not comfortable waiting for our Governor Ron DeSantis to shut the state down or the county levels to shut non-essential businesses down. They really wanted to do this early. They were tired of cleaning everything. It's really hard in these high contact businesses to know and be sure. Um, and with the beaches, you know, there's there's a level of communication. And I think we we tried to talk about in this in the show, um, all emergencies are local to some extent. It's not a bad thing that some leadership was left to local leaders because they know their communities and they are in them. Um, but to a certain extent, you do need that state and federal guidance to make things easier. And so I, I think what I meant when I said there's, there wasn't a right and wrong is there's not a good guy and a bad guy between California and Florida yet on, in terms of our numbers and, and our statistics that have been so close, um, at least until Florida had spiked. Um, but it's interesting to see that the, the communication is almost as important as having good data. And I think part of this episode really tries to take you into the minds of leaders, 
trying to make decisions with what they had. As long as we're saying that, Katie, I just have to, that, that Governor Newsom did this week strongly defend the reopening. Uh, I didn't mean to suggest otherwise, but he was warning against a second wave or the possibility of a second wave. Thank you both for the work you've done. Uh, excellent work. Uh, you can be proud of it and proud to have both of you on. Thank you so much. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.